morning, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time. Thanks to those of you who will be teaching. They are working their way through uh, the Bible together just like we are. So kids, have a great time. Uh, everybody else, would you turn with me to uh, Philippians 4? We are continuing on today through the book. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. And a few pages into that Bible, you'll find a table of contents. You can look in the New Testament for a book called Philippians. The big chapters, the big numbers of the chapters and the small numbers of the verses will be in Philippians 4 today. Philippians 4. Kent, your uh, prayer was very timely and helpful. Brother, thank you. Uh, Rightly understood, Christianity is both intensely relational and pervasively personal. What I mean is nothing remains unaffected when God saves you. And the relational expectations of Christianity are extremely high. Both of these issues, the relational intensity of Christianity and the pervasiveness of its personal nature, come into play in our text in Philippians 4. So before we read it, I want to take a couple of minutes and try to walk through those with you um, individually. First, let's talk for a few minutes about a relational intensity as we see it in Christianity. Uh, The decision to follow Christ is a decision that can only be made by individuals. So even if you're born, for example, into a Christian home, quote unquote, your parents can't force you to come to Christ any more than a government could do that or a church could do that. It is an individual decision that must be made by an individual. The Christian faith is never to be forced upon someone by someone else. You see, you and you alone must decide if Jesus is really who he says he is. Nobody else can do that for you. We are personally accountable to God for that decision in and of ourselves. But the fact that entrance into the Christian faith is only through the a door of an individual, that doesn't mean that Christianity itself is individualistic. In fact, quite the opposite. The Bible tells us that the Christian faith is always to be lived out in the context of a Christian community. So in very real, substantive ways, Christianity gloriously alters life for those of us who believe. And we change from I, my, and mine, to we, ours, and us. Because our eyes move off of ourselves up to God and then outward to each other. And so the context for Christianity is always uh, in membership in a local church. And then the church is to have a united mindset, what we might call a, a communal sense of responsibility where we're not just looking out for our own individual walks with God, but we're looking to help each other and our collective walks with God. Now, of course, if everybody in the church were the same, then that would make that relatively easy, right? Yes? But we're not. Look around you. We come from rather diverse stock, which means that this collective, communal effort becomes rather challenging. 
But not just challenging, it becomes extremely powerful. You see, we likely can't agree on whether to use paper or plastic at the grocery store. How much more do we struggle to agree on the weighty things of life, even the eternal things? But God calls us, particularly in this book known as Philippians, to an agreeable mindset, to the same mind. The only way we could possibly live that out is through God's strength. Now, this renders church unity to be something of great importance before the watching world. Perhaps two of the most famous passages on church unity are found in the Gospel of John, and they'll be up here on the screen, so you don't need to turn there. Let me just read to you two of these. John 13, 34 to 35 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I, this is Jesus talking, have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus put our love for each other as Christians in a class all of its own. And then later in John 17, he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for all who will believe in me through their word, which would be us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The relational intensity of Christianity makes us as a people particularly susceptible to conflict and disunity. You see, this isn't a faith we walk alone. It's a faith we walk together, which means it will invariably bring up the conflict and hardship and ongoing sin that's present inside of us. And the more of us there are together, the more of that there tends to be. You see, the process of maturing spiritually is to be done life on life, which means there will be disagreements, misunderstandings, and even at times hurt feelings. But to be a follower of Christ means that I will open my life to your help in my discipleship and invite you into the same in my life. Now, what do we do when we get hurt in this intensely relational nature of the Christian faith? That's what our passage is about today. And the principle basically is this. God's call is that our relational union together would be commensurate with us being united to Christ. So as Christ says, I've united you with the Father, we are then to be united in a Trinity-level oneness with each other. Now, frankly, I don't fully get that. I, I understand the concept, but actually seeing that happen in real life among a people who are incredibly diverse is something we're still aspiring to. What we'll find in our passage today is that even the best of us can fall prey to the problems of disagreeableness, of strife, and of disunity. That's what happened in the church in Philippi. And apart from God intervening, that's what will happen at the church on Mill. Now, in addition to this relational intensity, we said that the Christian faith is also very, very personal. 
You see, Jesus is not only the Savior that keeps you from hell when you die. He's also the Lord who demands complete allegiance in all areas of life today. Not just when you die, but today. So one of the rather uncomfortable ways the Bible gets at this is through the concept of jealousy. It's rather surprising. So just track with me in this for a moment. There's a grade schooler at school. He's on recess, and it's time for dodgeball. Everybody lines up. There's two captains. They start picking their teams. And what happens? There's a child left behind. George Bush didn't get it all right. There is always a child left behind. Now, what is that child likely to do? He's likely to be jealous. Jealous of all the other kids who got picked before him. Now, we rightly understand jealousy in that sense to be selfish, to be sinful, to be rooted in insecurity. But what about when a wife wakes up at night and she finds her husband's not lying next to her. She gets up to find him sitting on the couch in the living room eating Cheetos and watching porn. What should she feel? She should feel jealous. Jealousy in that sense is not sinful at all. In fact, it's right. It's appropriate. Something's wrong if she doesn't feel jealous. You see, the marriage vow includes the pledge to sexual exclusivity. It's part of what makes it marriage, is there's a commitment physically to enjoy each other and each other only. So jealousy in that way is a godly, biblical, helpful form of jealousy. So the question, of course, is, when the Bible uses phrases like this in Exodus chapter 20, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous, jealous God, or jealous, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Which one is it? Is it like that child that didn't get picked for dodgeball, or is it like that wife who's been cheated on? Is it a sinful jealousy rooted in cosmic insecurity, or is it a holy jealousy rooted in an exclusive, unfathomable love? Well, of course, it's, it's the latter. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament say that we, as God's people, have committed spiritual adultery. That's rather shocking that God would put it that way. What that means is we've been unfaithful to God. And so his jealousy then for us is a holy jealousy. He's God and we are to share our highest allegiance with him and with him alone. Here are two passages that show that, just in case you don't believe me. Jeremiah 3, verse 20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you, referring to God's people in the Old Testament, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This isn't a way we commonly talk about or think about God. But very, very frequently in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, God pictures himself as a jealous lover, as a spouse who's been cheated on. But maybe that's just the stuff of the Old Testament, that old, stuffy, uptight, grumpy God before Jesus. No. 
James chapter 4 says this, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? What we find in Jeremiah and in James is that to play around with sin is to sleep around on God. You see, God's heart breaks when we trade in for him what is far less valuable than him. God's heart breaks when we climb in bed for an experience with another lover. Now, do you hear what I mean when I say the Christianity of the Bible is a very personal Christianity, described in the intimate most of terms? Friend, God wants all of you. And so he rightly and jealously yearns for your total obedience, total allegiance, and total enjoyment. And so it's never, ever, ever appropriate to say to God, no, you can't have that part of me. That little corner of my heart, that closet in the back, that's for the secrets that are just for me. God doesn't allow that. Now, in the book of Philippians, Paul works hard to get at both this relational intensity and this personal pervasiveness of the Christian life lived in Christian community. Surprisingly, the intersection of those two things is the mind. And so from start to finish, we're told over and over and over again to give your mind to the Lord, to think thoughts after God in a way that honor him, and that this relational nature and this personal nature of Christianity will walk themselves out in practice when we think well. No less than 10 times in this short book, we're challenged as a church family not to act in certain ways first, but to think in certain ways. Does that surprise you? Christians, the goal of Trinity-level oneness that God has for us is that we would live well on mission in the world. But how are we to get there? Well, it's through our thoughts. Somehow Christianity, particularly in the West, has developed a reputation for something less than robust thoughtfulness. This has not always been the case. Now, we're in the university context, literally in the shadows of one of the great universities of the United States. But for some reason, in a secular sense, we're used to robust thought. But when it comes to the Christian faith, we sometimes think we must turn off our minds if we are to believe. It's funny how far we've strayed. It hasn't always been this way. Did you know that Harvard, Yale, and Princeton and across the Atlantic to the much older Oxford, St. Andrews, and Cambridge were all founded by Christians for theological study. That is where those universities came from. The Christian faith is a thoughtful faith worthy of deep, even deepest thought. There's no one more captivating than God. 
Now, what does all this have to do with Philippians? This is, in fact, the longest introduction I have ever given you. It has everything to do with the book. Everything. This relational intensity and this thorough, pervasive, personal nature of the faith meet in the mind. There's a Greek word, it's called phreneo, that happens over and over and over in the book. Let me show you how this fleshes itself out. Philippians 1, verse 7, they'll be on the screens. We're getting to Philippians 4. Philippians 1, verse 7. It is right for me to feel phreneo this way about you all. I hold you in my heart. As Paul thought about the church at Philippi, he had good feelings. He had good thoughts. So he started the book by saying, when I think of you, church, I think well of you. Later on in chapter 2, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection from sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. The same word again, phreneo. Having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. There it is again. A little further along in verse 5. Have this mind, phreneo, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Chapter 3, verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. With minds set on earthly things. And then we hit our verse for today. Chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree, it's the same word, to think, to have the same thoughts in the Lord. Over the next three weeks, we're going to find together three things. We'll only get to one of them today. But do you want to experience peace in the church? The key is in our minds. Do you want to experience peace in your heart? Do you want to have the ability to sit down on the inside? To not be an internal chaos, mind running all the time? Well, the key is in your mind. Do you want to further the gospel with your resources? Well, the key is in your mind. All three of those things. What binds chapter 4 together is our thoughts. Which brings us to the body of our message. Philippians 4, 2 and 3. Let me read them both. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche. Two great names. To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Only two verses. That's all we'll look at today. We want to examine these two verses from four different angles to try and fully grasp what they're saying. First, we'll consider together the situation. What situation is being described? Second, we'll consider the solution. What solution does Paul prescribe? Third, we'll look at the source for that solution. 
And finally, the stakes. What is at stake in this? Now, notice anything nifty up there. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? My daughter this week taught me the new thing kids are doing, which is this. Forget what that's called. What is that called? Dabbing. When I look at that, I just want to dab. It was fabulous. All right, so, thank you, Dre. One brother in the room who can appreciate this. All right, first, the situation. So what's the situation? Well, two leading ladies in the church in Philippi are duking it out. That's the situation. Not that that would ever happen here. <laughs> Randy, why did you find that so amusing, brother? Of course it was a man to laugh the loudest in the room. Rather chauvinistic. <laughs> but just to point out, Paul seems to go out of his way to indicate these are not simply grumpy, cantankerous, easily stirred up old ladies. He seems to say these are some of the best of the best. These are godly, thoughtful, faithful, hardworking, Christ-like women. There are some of Paul's fellow soldiers in the joyful task of getting the gospel out in Philippi and then beyond. And yet they have found themselves in a conflict so bitter it necessitated a public shout out. So imagine we're the church of Philippi. It wasn't like everybody had a copy and a few verses were up on the screens. One person stood or sat in front of everybody and read. So imagine you're sitting in the congregation. You're hearing this read. Yes, yes, so good. Oh, that's feeding my soul. Yes, yes. Yodia, Syntyche, quit it. Get on the same page. Have the same mind. Apparently, this conflict was so public that Paul could just speak it out loud to the whole church and everyone would know exactly what he was talking about. Today, I thought I'd Paul, follow Paul's example and call a few of you out. You're lucky, I'm joking. <laughs> now, what was their dispute over? What were they fighting about? We don't know. We don't know. It doesn't appear that it was the same kinds of issues that happened in some other churches. Because there's no mention of them somehow sharing false teaching there's no mention of grotesque, overt sexual sin or something like that. But apparently it was something major. You don't get the impression that they're fighting over what happened to the casserole dish. Something has happened that if it's not resolved, may erupt and disrupt and fracture this wonderful little church in two. So we don't know what they were in disagreement about. But if we're honest, does it really matter at all? We don't seem to have any trouble coming up with things to disagree about. The chances of conflict are many. As the saying goes, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. 
The situation in Philippi appeared small, perhaps, but the very gospel was at stake, we'll find in a few minutes. But at its heart, this was simply two members in a dispute that could not get resolved. So what was the solution? The solution to this dispute wasn't for one, of, one or both of them to leave the church. Frankly, that's the norm today. When I get together with other pastors, I hear them talk like that. I wish this person would just leave. And when there's conflict in the church, that is what is most frequent. Two people, they may have been in the same body, the same family for years. One little thing gets between them and one leaves. Friends, this not only cripples your spiritual growth, but it silences our gospel witness. We'd be far better off if we treated conflict like our church was truly the only church in town because then you'd be forced to deal with it, forced to work through it instead of simply carrying your problem to another church only to repeat the same pattern of behavior. What if we thought we're going to stay regardless and in love we're going to work it out Imagine the gospel witness we would have. It'd be amazing. The solution for these two sisters was to humbly do the work of coming together so they could agree. Not so that one could win. Not so that they could agree to bury the hatchet and just pretend it's not there. Sweep it under the rug and move on. But come to a point of agreement. So Paul makes this personal plea. He says, Yodia and Syntyche, agree. Have the same mind. Think well of each other. Resolve your situation. Treat each other like Christ has treated you. So I won't call us out individually, but I would like to make a personal plea. If you're here today and you have some sort of disagreement with another brother or sister in Christ? Would you consider stepping away from self-interest and self-protection and stepping towards resolution, towards agreement? Would you orient yourself around the gospel of Jesus Christ and then stand confidently in His grace as you pursue another person and seek out agreement? Work through the issue. Have a disposition of humility and service towards each other. And then get back to the work of gospel ministry. Friends, that ought to be normal for church. Not something that has to be such a humongous dispute that it rises to the level of confrontation. But just the normal stuff of week in and week out Christianity. Our world is being split in two by conflict. Consider the strife in America just this past week. Have you turned on the TV or opened the newspaper? You're looking at a nation 
fractured, literally hanging on by a thread. What if the church were different? What if the church lived like citizens under heaven, under a better king? What if the world came to see the relational harmony and selfless compassion they're desiring for in the world, flowing freely not from the government, but from the church? What if our words were marked not by increasing harshness and self-interest, but by love and self-giving? What if we didn't march around picketing and demanding our own rights, but freely gave them up for the good of others? That could start today in this little church as we seek to be a faithful gospel witness. But it cannot go forth from us if we're in disputes with each other. It won't work. Paul's plea was for these two to work it out, to agree, and it's still his plea today that we would work it out. And understand that as we do so, as we work at that together, then just like Paul asked the church in Philippi, the church as a whole, and then some particular leader within the church to get involved, then understand that Friends, our membership commitment to each other is that if we get in some disagreement and it becomes obvious that two individuals cannot seem to work it out, then what's the rest of the body to do? We're to help them. We're not to say, that's not my business. Who am I to judge? Instead, in love and compassion, we're to run toward disagreement, to help resolve it instead of retreating away. I find, frankly, tremendous comfort in knowing that I have a church family who won't let me wander away into personal sin over some little dispute, but who will come towards me in love. This is God's vision for church, and it's a beautiful one. Really, Paul is doing nothing but getting back to something he said in chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind, there it was, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What kind of thinking did Jesus have? Well, he emptied himself, he served, he gave away his rights, he sacrificed for the good of other people. Not when they deserved it, but precisely when they didn't deserve it. Brothers and sisters, we are to look at life the same way. We're to see the world through the same eyes. That's an incredibly tall order. Is it even possible? It is, if we go to the right source. Paul told those two ladies in dispute to agree in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, friends, Jesus is the source of every resolution in the church. 
He's the power that enables us to set aside our demands and take up an attitude of love and forgiveness. Paul had every confidence that this would happen. He seems to stack up reasons in these two verses why he believes these two ladies will come to a point of agreement. He heaps compliments upon them, even when they're in the middle of a dispute. You see, he, and likewise we, we will choose humility, love, and forgiveness because that's what we've been given in Christ. See, God doesn't ask us to give each other something we don't have. Instead, he says, you have experienced love and grace and forgiveness from me. Therefore, now extend the same to each other. So friend, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, would people consider you to be a person of robust, united, agreeable, non-contentious thought and speech? Or are you known to be a little pebble in the shoe? There is not a third choice. The reservoir we draw from to seek reconciliation with another Christian and to live with this unifying disposition is none other than the power of God himself. The power that simply spoke words and created the world. The power that spoke words and raised Jesus from the dead. The power that's speaking even today from God's word, creating a new humanity. We learned in chapter 2 that this is ours already in Christ. Amen? Now, what if you're saying, I hear you, but I've never experienced that? Then I would say probably many people in the room are likely having the same reaction. We are so used to something less than the unity to which God has given us. We are so accustomed when there is dispute to simply running the other way. Whether it's in marriage or in friendship, even in parenting, let alone the church, a, a voluntary commitment to each other where we can simply get in the car or even ride a bike to another people. And yet you shortchange the growth God would have for you if you do that. Honestly, the, the greatest pain I have ever felt has been in the church, not outside the church. And yet, all of the spiritual growth I've experienced has also been in the church. That's the way it works. We are sandpaper on each other's souls, smoothing out the rough edges. And finally, the stakes. Friends, the stakes in our relational unity couldn't be higher. Yes, you can pick up your marbles and go home. Yes, you can have a disagreeable attitude and continue to come to worship service every week. Yes, there's lots of gospel communities, and if something goes bad in one, you can pick up another. Yes, there's another church down the street. There is more than one church in Tempe. But there is only one gospel in Tempe. 
God's design is that the church would be an embassy, an outpost of heaven here on earth. He has not given that role to the government. So why should we be surprised when we're not getting along in the world? But we are in the church. That's normal. But how backwards we have this, sometimes experientially. Jesus reconciles sinners to God, and he also reconciles sinners to each other. But we have to give ourselves to this task. At age 66, a British missionary of 35 years returned home from the mission field, and he found his country's churches in massive decline. The gospel, it seems, in England and Great Britain had largely been lost. And this missionary came to the conclusion that the very mission strategies he'd learned overseas had now to be employed in his home country if they were to recover the gospel. Beautiful church buildings, not quite like ours, had become museums, 10, 15, 20% full while the world passed by. And he said, if that's ever to change, then yes, the sermons we preach are of tremendous importance. But how are people to hear the word if they won't come in and hear the word? That's when he began to think with a missional strategy and read the Bible in a missional way. I wonder if you'll hear his conviction with me. He wrote, I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power with which the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Now that's a rather academic way of saying that the best way, perhaps in some cases the only way, people will be able to see and read and hear, observe the biblical truth that Jesus died and rose again is by how we treat each other. And how else and in what circumstance is our difference, the difference the gospel makes in our lives, more profoundly seen than when we disagree, than we, we hurt each other, and we choose not to run away, but rather to run towards and to work it out. Newbegin was talking about the United Kingdom, but we are racing towards that same end in America. And the way out is not to elect someone who talks as though he had a Christian faith. It's also not to stand on the street corners and preach 
some gospel of hate. But rather, it's to display a love so great for each other, so sacrificial, that the world is forced to say, how in the world could you ever forgive that? And we can say, because God forgave me. Friends, our relationships put flesh on the gospel and display it to the world. The way we work at reconciliation with each other puts God reconciling us in Christ on display for those who won't hear it. So Christians, the message for us today is that we would work out our difficulties with a nature of disposition, a disposition of grace towards each other. And non-Christians, I wouldn't be faithful to the large message of the Bible if I didn't say to you that the message for you today is to be reconciled to God in Christ. You are not in a harmonious, loving, peaceful union with your Creator, but you can be. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived the life you should have lived, died the death that we all deserve, and then rose in victory. He is with the Father now in heaven, interceding even for you. That if you would turn from a life of sin and turn to a life with Him, you can be in harmony with your Creator, your God, simply by nature of a free gift. And then that free gift becomes the source through which you can be reconciled with people. This is the work of Christ. Amen? One of the ways the Bible gives us to re-experience this truth is through something called the Lord's Supper. And so today we're going to observe that together. If you're helping today to serve the Lord's Supper, would you Go ahead and come forward to these, to the table and start passing out those elements as I introduce them. And to everybody else, I wonder if you could work really hard at not being distracted by them and letting me just have two or three more minutes to introduce what we're about to do. If, if you want to see what sin and self-interest do to humanity then simply turn on the news when you go home today. At present, this country is anything but the United States. I met with quite a few people this week who I felt as though I were meeting with someone who were mourning the death of a loved one. The, the, the loss and the fear are that strong for some of us. Friends, this is the reality of humanity apart from God. To some degree or another, without Jesus, we are all divided people and driven by self-motivations. But this is not so in the new humanity, in the church of Jesus Christ, a community under King Jesus where self-interest doesn't rule, but rather self-giving does. 
So we as a church have an incredible opportunity today. The world is looking for a place not divided by color, not divided by education, not divided by economic status. I hope you can see that. More than in any time in my lifetime, certainly, there's a palpable felt need for reconciliation. The world's looking for that in a place, but it won't be found in a place. It's found in a people. And that people is not the inhabitants of a particular country, but the inhabitants of the church of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection reconcile us both to God and to each other. And God knows we need reminders of this, that we need to re-experience the amazing truth that we're all united to Christ and to each other now. And so he gave us what you're holding. He gave us the Lord's Supper. The bread that's in that cup symbolizes the body of Jesus broken as a substitute for your sin. The juice, the blood, symbolizes the blood of Jesus shed to reconcile sinners to himself. And why do we do this together, not at home as individuals? Well, it's because the church taking it together pictures God reconciling us together as his people. So it's an act we do together. So I would invite you today, if you're a Christian and a member of a local church, to take this bread and this cup and to look up to Jesus with thanksgiving for reconciling us to each other. And then to look around to other brothers and sisters in Christ who God has also welcomed into his family. That we remember his broken body, his shed blood, and the gathering of a people who serve today as a foretaste when all of God's people will be together with him forever. You see, we're all equals in God's family. Right? And so the harmony the world is looking for is found in the church because Jesus died and rose again. One author put it this way. I found this this morning. I'll read it and then let's take together. What binds us together is not common education, not common race, not common income levels, not common accents or a common nationality, not common jobs or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collection, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that we have all been loved by Jesus himself, Christians commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love each other. I love this last sentence, phrase. In this light... They are a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. Apart from Jesus, we are natural enemies who fight for our own interest. But we are no longer simply natural people. We're supernatural people because Christ has saved us.
So I invite you now to take that bread and cup and let's eat them, drink, and observe together the broken body and shed blood of Christ. And then would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the sacrificial death and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've given us this means of grace by which we can in a very tactile, physical way remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. We praise you then that you've given us not just you to be reconciled with, but the other through which we can grow and mature in the faith. Often that growth comes through easy, joyful, wonderful experiences together. But sometimes it does come through hardship and difficulty. So Father, I would pray in a very specific way for Church on Mill. That if there are any here today who are out of fellowship with each other, whether that's a husband and a wife, a, a mother and child, a father and son, members in a gospel community, friends who once discipled each other, one of the leaders and a follower. Father, if there is a breakdown of fellowship, then I pray that one of those parties would have the courage and strength to go to the other, even before they leave this room, and seek to come to a point of agreement in Christ. Father, forgive us when we have protected our self-interest over the spread of the gospel. Father, I would also pray for those here today who are still considering the claims of Christ. I pray that they would forgive us as Christians for when we have displayed less than the unity given to us in Christ and thus provided them with a less powerful witness. And I pray that they could look through imperfect followers of Jesus to the perfect Jesus Christ and come to enjoy fellowship with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.